When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. And today on Hopping Mad, our guest for the interview is Jim Harper. He's the Indiana Secretary of State Democratic candidate. He's a fascinating guy. It's a great interview. You're going to love it. But before we get there, I want to talk to you a little bit about plans that Networks Radio is making in case, and actually thinking ahead that when Robert Mueller is fired. And, um, you know, it's not that we wish that, but um, we are preparing for it. If and when that should happen, Networks Radio is actually going to break into our normal programming and go live. Just Justice Putnam and Tom Cheevers will produce and carry the live feed. And um, David Waldman, Travis Rosen, and Rachel Hutchison. David Waldman from Kager on the Morning. Travis and Rachel from Irreverent Testimony. Armando and Greg Dorkin from K-Grow's show, as well as Joan McCarter, will also drop in. Drift Glass and Blue Gal will come in from their show. Cliff Schechter of uh, Majority Report fame uh, and others. Will and I both will um, drop in as our respective schedules permit. And we're going to, to um, cover a variety of areas. And we've tried to make sure that between us all, we're covering everything. Among other things, we will be covering the moveon.org rapid response actions that are already planned all over the country. If you have not gone to moveon.org, do that or um, Google nobody is above the law and sign up for the action that is closest to you. Rallies will begin within hours of Mueller's firing. Uh, If it happens before 2 p.m. on the day, whatever day that is, then the rally will begin at 5 p.m. If it happens after 2 p.m., then they're saying that the rallies will begin at noon the next day. Honestly, I don't think people are going to wait overnight, but maybe that's just me. That's my opinion. But be prepared. If I were you, make your sign now. Um, Take whatever you might want to wear to a rally to work with you. Just keep it in your car. Uh, if you work from home, because this thing could drop at any time. And, you know, we we want to be able to respond right away. Uh, next up on Hopping Mad, Will is going to update us on the situation in Catalonia, which is incredibly interesting. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. In October of last year, Catalonia kind of declared its independence from Spain and then asked for immediate talks to work out the details uh, and ask for immediate negotiations. I've heard since that the reason for the weird aborted uh, declaration of independence was because the people in the Catalan parliament were told that there would be a heavy military crackdown if the Catalans had actually declared a UDI. So they declared a suspended UDI and then asked for talks and the Party Popular said, no, we're not going to talk. And so they declared independence and the government fled the country. And Puigdemont and some other Catalan politicians have essentially been operating a, a sort of government in exile, attempting to negotiate with the Spanish government, who believes that negotiation is weakness. 
And rather than sitting down and talking with the Catalans, uh, the government of Spain under Mariano Rajoy has been using fascist era laws about things like rebellion to try to extradite these politicians back to Spain so that they can be thrown in jail for 30 years, which is the punishment for rebellion. Uh, now, they've run into a problem, the Spanish have, in extraditing Puigdemont and other politicians in that other countries don't have fascist laws on the books, which defined civil disobedient type actions as horrible crimes that you can be jailed for 30 years for committing. Now, I'm, I'm a bit frustrated with the news that I was getting out of Europe, especially from Spanish sources, because I was told by a number of articles that when the European warrant is used, an EU warrant rather than an extradition request, uh, and these EU warrants were designed to streamline the extradition process in cases uh, dealing with drug crimes or sex trafficking or murder or other really horrific crimes. That's what the EU warrants or organized crime. That's what the EU, EU warrants are designed to deal with. Um, I was told that the EU warrants ignore what's called a dual criminality. In extradition cases, a usual uh, caveat to extradition treaties and such is, is the dual criminality standard, which is you can only request extradition if the crime that someone supposedly committed is a crime in the country that the person currently lives. So Saudi Arabia can't extradite somebody from the United States for blasphemy because that's not a law here. And someone who committed a, a blasphemy crime in Saudi Arabia or Iran and then ended up in the United States just simply can't be extradited, even if we had an extradition treaty with those countries. It, it, it wouldn't be held up in the courts. And despite a lot of people saying that Puigdemont would be extradited from Germany, it turns out that the German courts have declined to extradite him, even under the EU warrant, because rebellion is not a crime in Germany unless you use guns to do it. The same thing's true in the UK, uh, where a woman named Clara Ponsati, who is an academic at a university in Scotland, who is not trying to do any kind of government in exile thing. She's just going back to work in a university setting uh, where she was before she was elected to the, to the Catalan parliament, where she has just been released on bail because it's not clear that the UK has rebellion either. I have been routinely frustrated with a lot of the reporting, even here with The Guardian, uh, who says that uh, Clara Pisanti, Ponsati, the Catalan academic facing extradition from Scotland to Spain for alleged sedition. The reason I have an issue there is because she's not charged with sedition. Because sedition, under UK law, to the extent that I can discover using Google involves violence. You have to be trying to get somebody to invade or to forcibly remove the crown from the king, or in this case, the queen, or to uh, act with violence. The same thing's true of German law regarding this stuff. Well, sedition means you're trying to, to um, undermine the state, and they're not trying to undermine the state of Spain. They're trying to create their own country. 
Yeah, they're trying to revive the state of, of Catalonia. They have no interest in undermining the state of Spain. And so it's it's not clear that this this applies. And also the Spaniards aren't charging them with sedition because their law is rebellion, which is a different thing. And a much harsher thing where just doing something peacefully it qualifies as sedition under Spanish law. So, you know, I don't want to bow to what a lot of people are saying uh, on the Catalan side. They are accusing the Spaniards of being a chauvinistic culture who believe that dialogue is weakness. And I don't want to believe that. But Rajoy seems really intent on proving them right with the way he has refused dialogue at every stage of this process. Uh, and he's getting called out by other parties now who are pointing out that the Catalan independence movement is now an international issue that is hurting Spain's credibility internationally and is now affecting its standing within the EU. In that Spain is going to have a much harder time extraditing people if they keep trying to use this rebellion charge or trumped up charges of financial embezzlement which are patently and obviously false, according to Spanish unionists in Catalonia. But that's the other charge they've tried to get these folks on. And in the midst of all this, there is, of course, the Russian angle, because the Russians can't leave well enough alone. Now, I saw some minor Russian interference in the Scottish independence referendum, where RT spun up to talk about things. And then we saw the same thing happen during the breakfast Brexit referendum where RT spun themselves up to encourage Brexit. But they don't operate in these environments to try to support one side. They are there to create chaos, which is why at the end of the independence referendum, they tried to say that the vote was fraudulent. And the, there were a couple of Russian observers who made up this story about uh, ballot stuffing at the Edinburgh account, which was false because the Edinburgh account was overrun by SNP activists and I talked to them and they're like, that didn't happen. I don't know why the Russians are saying this happened. And the Russians are saying this happened was because they wanted to cause chaos. They wanted to cause uh, revolt and violence. And they're doing the same thing now where they're now intervening instead of on the Catalan side, but on the Spanish side. And they are now pushing the angriest anti-Catalan propaganda they can because they want to create an aggressive mood towards the Catalan people. And they want the Catalonians to feel alone and angry enough to engage in some kind of violent revolt because they don't want the Catalans to win. In actuality, they don't want any side to win. They want a permanent destabilization and a permanent fight that goes on and on and on and never ends. Because that's, that's the tactic that they use. They create frozen conflict zones. And you can see this around their sphere of influence. You can see it with South of Setia and Abkhazia, where they're not actually interested in any kind of solution to the separatist movements there. They want a frozen conflict. You can see that in Transnistria, in uh, Moldova, between Ukraine and Moldova, where there's this tiny little self-recognized uh, Russian republic. And you can see that in the Donbass, where they're trying to destabilize a, destabilize a portion of Ukraine as well as in their area of annexed Crimea. Both regionally and 
politically, they try to create conflicts that don't proceed peacefully and which don't end. And unfortunately, Mariano Rajoy and the Party Popular are playing right into Putin's hands here by not taking the path of dialogue and by not working democratically to resolve their differences with Catalonia. Instead, by taking a very hardline stance and threatening to send in the tanks and threatening to lock up their politicians for 30 years and threatening to jail people who've been acting in a peaceful and democratic way. Just like they tried to disrupt the Catalan vote in October with violence by beating poll workers and stealing ballot boxes. Coming up on Hopping Mad, Arliss is going to be talking about the census. Stay tuned. We're back on Hopping Mad. And, of course, the census has been, amazingly, on the tip of everyone's tongue for the last week or so. And so I wanted to give some basics about the census, some things I think you probably don't know about the census, some sort of backgrounding information. And then I'll get into talking about the real issue that's raging that everybody's lighting their hair on fire about. So... The census is mandated in Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, and the next mandated census is, of course, decennial census that'll be taken in 2020. The Bureau of the Census is part of the Department of Commerce, which is why Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross is busy sticking his foot in his mouth on this subject. The Constitution directs that the count be made for the purpose of apportioning representatives and direct taxes. Since we've become a data-driven culture during the years in between the census, the Census Bureau conducts a number of other smaller surveys. The most important of these is the American Community Survey. And starting in 2010, the American Community Survey, the ACS, has basically replaced the long-form census. There used to be both a short-form census and a long-form census. And about 20% of Americans would receive the long-form census. Now the American, the American Community Survey goes out uh, on an annual basis to three and a half million Americans. And that has completely replaced long-form census. So when they do the decennial census in 2020, everybody gets the short-form. The conduct of the decennial census is governed by U.S. Code Title 13, and that guarantees the absolute confidentiality of the individual surveys collected. And failure to answer the census is punishable by a fine of up to $100 for an individual. It goes up to $10,000 for a business. And due to the 72-year the rule, which was put in place in 1952 at a time when the average Female lifespan was 71.6 years, so they chose 72 years because it was just a little bit longer than most women live. It's called the 72-year rule, and specific census data is not available to the general public until after 72 years. So the data taken in 2010 will be available on April 1st, 2082, and the most recent census data made available is 1940s census. Aggregate census data is released as soon as it's available. And that period of time is getting shorter and shorter, of course, as methods for computation and collection are streamlined. So who gets counted? And this is where things get touchy when we start talking about the census. In theory, everyone alive on April 1st, 2020 will be counted. 
if they they died after April 1st, they get counted. Even if your the census taker arrives at your door or whatever in August, say, or July, if if the person died before uh, after April 1st, they get counted as being alive. So but they're counting not just registered voters or those eligible to vote. They count everybody. So they're counting children. They're counting citizens. They're counting non-citizen legal residents. So, you know, green card holders. And they don't ask a green card question. So they don't, they aren't determining who is an eligible voter, which is interesting when you think about it. They're counting non-citizen uh, long-term visitors. What? I'm sorry. Didn't I hear that they wanted to add a green card question to kind of intimidate voters that were from Latino backgrounds? Oh no, we're getting to that. They're adding okay. a they're adding a, um, a citizenship question, but ah, right. we're getting there. That's farther down in the in the list because that's the really the big conversation. <laughs> but there's a lot of other background stuff about the census that I think is really interesting. The um, Americans living abroad who work for the federal government, so the military, diplomats, uh, various employees of Department of Agriculture and Commerce, those kinds of folks, they get counted. And undocumented residents, undocumented people living in in the United States get counted. People who are not counted would be babies born after April 1st, 2020, Americans living abroad who don't work for the federal government. So if your company sends you abroad, you don't get counted in the census, no matter where you actually live, you know, in the real world when you get back. So you aren't counted for representation. But here's the big one. The homeless don't get counted at all. So apparently they really just aren't people, according to the U.S. government. Counted strangely, and I have actually have a category called counted strangely, Prisoners are counted as residents of the prison, not residents of the place where they lived prior to incarceration. And that really skews counts. It both skews counts in the districts where the prison is located and in the districts where the prisoner is from. And there's this outstanding legal question about how congressional districts should be counted as it relates to the census. So are they drawn as a count based on account of everyone who lives in them, or is they, are they drawn based on account of potential voters? Because those are two different things. And currently, the Supreme Court has said that they can't, a, a state can't be forced to draw its lines based on account of everyone, but they have the option to. So it becomes variable state by state. So it's one of those ways in which in which representation is, again, skewed. So in areas where there are many undocumented residents or a large prison population, they have a much smaller number of voters actually making the choices about their representatives. So your vote is more powerful if you live in a place where there are a lot of undocumented residents or a large prison population. And it's the same kind of skewing that you see when in the Senate or in the Electoral College, when small states, for instance, when their votes are much more powerful than large states because the population is not, you know, equal all across the country. And it's, it is a way in which voting and representation is skewed toward the GOP. It skews red. 
right? If you are if you are making um, votes in districts where there are large percentages of undocumented workers or undocumented people more powerful, then you are skewing toward the GOP because you are erasing the other people. So, and will there's a there's an issue around the LGBTQ. Uh, persons as well. And you and I had, uh, we had a um, heated a, a, a conversation, which you um, characterized as being heated agreement once we both figured out that we were saying the same thing. And, <laughs> exactly uh, <laughs> the same thing, but with different words. And it got to this yes. point where I was like, but you said, I'm like, no, you said, and then we realized, no way, we, we agree with each other. That's the same thing. Completely. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Um, and it, it circles around uh, the idea that, that LGBT people are not being counted by the census uh, as LGBT people and that, that like uh, everyone who's currently not counted by the census and isn't counted at all, like people who work overseas or are homeless folks or all these other groups, LGBT folks need to be counted as LGBT folks uh, because that, the data that we get from the census is used not just to determine who lives in a certain neighborhood and not just you know, voting blocks and, and taxation and those other things. But the data gathered from the census allows us to have accurate granular data on our communities that affect how we target health resources, how we target other resources, how we understand problems in various communities. Uh, it's really important, as we talked about earlier, which is why LGBT folks need to be counted as LGBT folks so that we can see where we've got population clusters, so we can know what services need to be grown in those areas, so that doctors and, and other public servants in those areas and, and other people working with communities in those areas can, can know uh, what to look out for. And because we exist, damn it, and deserve to be counted, just like every other group of people. Well, and the is, other one is, is if they're asking you to identify as male or female, and yeah. you don't, they're asking a binary question, for something that is not a binary, not a binary answer. So yes. anyway, so we ultimately figured out that we were both saying the same thing on that, Yes, but, uh, but it is and important. Actually, and we looked at the current ACS. Or, yeah, we yeah, just, yeah. We just looked it up and it's still, that problem is still not fixed. We don't know what the 2020 census will say, but under this administration, I have no faith that that problem will be fixed. Well, and you said looking at the ACS because they sometimes, you know, start questions there that eventually end up on, yeah. the, on the census. Like, and so it's kind of a testing ground for things. And, and one of the things you said was like, oh, great. So they're, they're counting, they're asking if people have refrigerators, but they're not going to ask about their LGBT identity. And Yes, they want to know yeah. if you have a sink with a faucet and a refrigerator, but they're not asking about how you identify. It's that, that's just crazy to me. Yeah. Just, that's crazy making. Anyway, so back to... And that to, crazy making is why we got into the... That's right. That's how we got into the... Yes. So back to the um, the census in general. So there were some improvements made in 2020. They eliminated in 20... In, in, I'm sorry, in 2010. In 2010, they eliminated the question about citizenship because the Bureau of the Census had figured out that they were... Um, getting fewer responses and they were cutting down the accuracy of their survey because they were asking the question. So they got rid of it. And in 2010, census response was also improved by distributing bilingual questionnaires to Spanish-speaking households. Also in 2010, questionnaires were resent to communities that were considered hard to count. 
and those can be a variety of uh, um, communities with a variety of different reasons for being difficult to count. Regardless, they started resending surveys, which they hadn't done before. Additionally, the Census Bureau, and this was interesting to me, they used real-time analysis to determine where response rates were lower than they expected. And during the 2010 census, they found that 18 to 24-year-olds were basically throwing the forms away. So they increased their digital advertising footprint to, to reach out. And that measurably improved their response rate in the demo. And uh, they have also, as of 2010, they switched, as I mentioned earlier, to just a short form census for the decennial census. And they got a far higher, uh, their response rate went from 70, uh, from 69% up to 72%, which when you think about people having to actually fill out a piece of paper and send it back in, that's pretty good. So, it made it made a measurable dramatic difference, and <laughs> this is something that they won't have in 2020. Well, that they may not have in 2020. In the 2010 census, the census takers who were sent out to follow up on census forms that were not returned were really high quality census takers because they because of the global financial crisis. So many people were out of work. And they had a much bigger, um, more qualified pool to draw upon than they had in past years. So we'll see where the economy is in 2020. But that, again, measurably affected the return of the 2010 census. So in 2020, here's what we know about that's coming up. First of all, the good news is that it will be an Internet response uh, uh, census for most of us or for many, many of us. The big problem and the thing that everybody's setting their hair on fire about is the re-inclusion of the citizenship question. Now, to begin with, <laughs> status of citizenship is actually a complicated question. I mean, it's not for people who were born here, but there are a lot of different shades, uh, you know, when you spread out from that. And so that I'm not even sure that everybody will know how to properly answer that question. But so therefore people don't always, what the census bureau knows is that people don't always answer it correctly. And then what they also know, and one of the reasons that they pulled it originally was that they found that as best they could correlate to about 30% of the people who said the, um, people who were not citizens when they were, um, asked, uh, when they were surveyed lied. Which, and you can completely understand that, right? They just flat out lied. So, you know, that's, and that's a huge number. So one of the, I mean, one of the primary reasons Census Bureau pulled the question was that it was not accurate. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, um, you know, billionaire Wilbur Ross, is saying that the value of reinserting the question exceeds the potential problems caused. He's, quote, willing to take the risk. <laughs> and it may be that he is, but it's an extraordinary risk to take, especially when one considers what's at risk. And it, let's not kid ourselves. Ross is completely clear on what's at risk. On the annual uh, American Community Survey of Hispanic respondents, 11.6 to 12.3% of people skip that question. So 
<laughs> Ross talks about this as if it was a standalone matter, as if it was, as if answering this question was existed in its own little bubble all by itself and the world wasn't going on around it. It's as if he never heard any of Trump's hate-filled speeches or read any of the tweets that he's sent out about Hispanics, be they American citizens or not. It is impossible to separate. It's absolutely impossible to separate this question from the political aspects of this question. It might not be under another uh, more neutral administration, but this administration is not neutral. Therefore, this question cannot be separated out from that. Historically, um, a question about citizenship was on the census until 19, the long form census until 1950 and the short form census until 2010. And, uh, the same question is still asked annually on the ACS, but people, again, 11.6 to 12.3% of people of Hispanics are skipping the question when it's on the ACS. The, what the census guarantees absolute confidentiality of the individuals the survey is surveying, but it is supposed to be completely confidential, but, and here's the thing they're not telling you, in the second War Powers Act of 1941, that confidentiality was stripped and the data was used to round up Japanese Americans for detention and confidentiality wasn't restored until 1947. So what we know based on 1941 is that that confidentiality is strictly and exclusively based upon the whim of Congress and could just as easily be revoked again. In 1980, the FBI tried to seize census documents in Colorado Springs, but the courts you know, held that no agency could, could take those records. But that is different than Congress just deciding to strip the confidentiality of the status. So even though the courts have upheld confidentiality, that is not the same as Congress actually changing the law. And if you actually want to yell at your podcasting device to let off some steam for whatever reason, I recommend listening to the first 20 minutes or so of the most recent episode of 538, an episode called Family Feud, where Nate Silver, who I normally really respect a great deal, can't see past his privilege to understand how dangerous this question is in this environment. He thinks that, quote, people have intelligent conversations about, <laughs> about why being counted is important. Really? That's what he thinks? And his solution is to either answer the question or not answer the census at all. He sees it as a question with marginal or little risk. And I see him as needing to spend more time with people outside of his own little bubble. Yeah, it sounds like he has marginal or little contact with Hispanics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just going to guess that. Um, the even more capacious problem, though, and, you know, as we're lighting our hair on fire about census-related issues, the actually the bigger problem, and it's hard to imagine that, I mean, there is actually a bigger problem, and that is that the census has really been starved in its budget. And how well it is budgeted has a great deal to do with how well, how well they are prepared. And that 
matters immensely when it comes down to how well they execute against a an effective release of the census. So, um, in fact, it's so bad that the head of the agency quit. He said it can't be done well based upon the amount of time left and the um, tiny budget available. So he quit. And Congress has added a little bit of money back into the budget, but not enough. And the fact is, it's almost too late. So the the real problem with the census is even bigger than we imagine. And it is a method of voter suppression. It is That is the intention. That's why the GOP has starved the Census Bureau. That's why they've added this question into the survey. It is all about voter suppression. And that makes our upcoming guest and our upcoming interview with Jim Harper, the candidate for Secretary of State in Indiana, all that much more interesting. He is an election law expert. And so that's why we wanted to have him on. And um, it's a really fascinating interview. I think you'll really enjoy it here on Hopping Mad. We're back on Hopping Mad. Attorney Jim Harper from Valparaiso, Indiana, is running as a Democrat for Secretary of State. Notably, Jim serves on the board of a not-for-profit organization, which provides free or reduced-cost legal services to veterans. He also serves on the board of a nonprofit, which provides early childhood education and other family services. At 34, Jim is both a millennial and would represent a new voice in Indiana, something which is much needed here. We at Hopping Mad are well aware of the importance of secretaries of state, as we have said in many past episodes of this show, as it applies to the significant role in oversight and protection of democratic voting processes. And this is why we particularly want to talk to Jim today. Welcome, Jim. Welcome. Good. To, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so it's been more than 30 years since Indiana elected a Democrat to the secretary of state's position. Why this year? I think that Democrats across the country are in a pretty good position this year. Uh, but I think particularly as it pertains to the Secretary of State's race, uh, there's an awful lot of energy uh, in our party and, and generally around the country about around making sure that we have fair elections and making sure that we uh, remove barriers to the ballot and, and, and do things that um, help boost our turnout and, and, and just generally strengthen our democratic process. And the secretary plays a really important role uh, in Indiana and in a lot of different states to ensure that. And I, I think that that's why there's going to be um, particular energy behind this race this year. I, I agree with you. I Before we get deeply into the details of election law and oversight, I know that one of your issues is very close to my heart, protection of small business in Indiana and promotion of small business in Indiana. What role does the Secretary of State play in that effort? Well, the Secretary has a business services division. The Secretary's office uh, does a lot of things that are, that are uh, uh, not particularly well known, and one of them is that the Secretary's office has a business services division. And so there's a role, there's a lot of good resources that the secretary's website has and uh, that individuals, uh, small business owners and who are considering uh, potentially uh, smart, uh, starting a small business can, can go to access. I'd like to see the office play a more proactive role, though, um, in providing uh, resources and guidance to individuals who are starting a business for, a small, for the first time or starting a business um, in a new area that, where they haven't been before. Um, to help them uh, not only navigate the registration process, but licensing processes um, that they have to go through both at the state and the local level, um, and kind of be a one-stop shop for individuals who, um, you know, who don't have the money to, to hire somebody to guide them through that process and, and, and are starting a, a more um, a straightforward business. I think there's a lot that we can do there 
um, to really um, uh, help incubate, you know, businesses across the state. And I think that's true all over the country, and people just don't recognize that, recognize the roles, so to speak. Uh, you're also out in front of issues around companies who defraud senior citizens and investors. Why is that close to your heart? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I think we've all, you know, know people or have people in our lives who've, you know, been taken advantage of by uh, uh, unscrupulous investment practices. And, you know, for me, frankly, it's one of the reasons why uh, I'm a Democrat is because that I think that our party at its best and what we should be doing is standing up for people uh, and helping them, you know, fight, fight back against practices like this, against unfair business practices. Um, and so the securities division in the Secretary of State's office, which is another one of those uh, uh, divisions in there plays a really important role in making sure that, um, uh, you know, Hoosiers or, you know, anybody in Indiana who is um, investing in a business isn't being taken advantage of. And we've seen, unfortunately, uh, in recent years, not just nationally with people like Bernie Madoff, but um, with people who have run smaller schemes, but still, you know, uh, uh, destructive ones. Um, in Indiana, we've seen people being taken advantage of here. Uh, and so I think that, you know, it's just an area that we have to remain very vigilant in. Yeah, I very, very much agree with that. So you recently marched with the folks at Valparaiso in the March for Our Lives, and previously uh, you had marched at the National Women's Day events. And were there people there? Did you see people there registering others to vote? And how do you think actions like this and other um, voter registration efforts will result in a change in the face of voting? Do you think it'll affect Indiana? Do you think in a state that's so red, do you think we're gaining on it? There certainly were people uh, at both of those events. I was at uh, the March for Our Lives in Valparaiso, and there were you know, there was a gr- one just in general, a great turnout there. I mean, for a smaller city like Valparaiso, there were uh, you know, about a thousand people who would come out and wow. the, um, the women's march in Indianapolis, you know, earlier this year. And at both of them, there were, um, you know, coordinated registration efforts in Valparaiso. And I know at other um, March for Our Live events around Indiana, at least, there was a big contingent from the League of Women Voters who were out there. And one of the things that I'm really excited about right now and, and, and has me optimistic about this year is, um, uh, all the efforts, at least in Indiana, that the League of Women Voters has been doing uh, to, uh, you know, to register new voters. So they were obviously out there at that march, you know, in, in my county, for instance, in, in Porter County, Northwest Indiana, you know, they're, they're going through to all the schools and you know, they have a team that's going to each government class or civic, civics class or whatever it might be um, to register younger people. Um, so I do think that, you know, obviously we'll, we'll see what happens uh, in November and, and, and I guess sooner than that in May, but, um, people, I'm seeing a level of energy and granted I'm newer to politics, but I'm seeing a level of energy, uh, that I haven't seen before. And, um, I, I think that that is going, I think we've seen that in special elections around the country over the last year, um, even in places that aren't typical, you know, democratic strongholds, right? Yeah. Um, Connor like, Lamb. Like in Pennsylvania and, and Connor Lamb is a great example of that. Um, so I think that the electorate, I think that you know, people in my generation and younger um, are going to have a strong turnout this year. And I think that's, you know, whether they're Republican, whether they vote Republican or Democratic, I think it's, you know, I, I think that that is a laudable thing because if you, if people start voting early, um, they're, they're likely to continue voting um, throughout their, throughout their lives. And that's one of the things that I really want to focus on in this campaign. And then in the secretary's offices is, is ways that we can really drive uh, uh, younger voter turnout and things that we can do to, to remove some of the obstacles and some of the barriers um, that prevent younger people from voting. 
And I do want to get into some of those things. But before I get there, I want to ask you, according to the Indianapolis Star, there's a leaked NSA report that says that six counties in Indiana, and this happened in places around the nation, but I'm here in Indiana, um, used voting systems that were hacked by the Russians. Senator Mark Werner says the election results were not affected. And uh, for Indiana in 2016, I can't imagine that that would be... Um, problematic since we went so deeply red in 2016. But um, what do you think it's going to affect 2018? What do you think is going on for 2018? The counties that were hacked are Floyd, Cass, Montgomery, Vandenberg, uh, Vigo, and Wayne. The company doing the hack that got hacked was VR Systems. And our current Secretary of State, Connie Lawson, says, we think we would have noticed if there was an issue. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I, it's an area of disagreement that I have um, with the secretaries that I, I don't think that, that that she has taken the threats uh, against our voting infrastructure as seriously as they, you know, as or, or at least been as proactive as we need to be. Like, it, you know, yeah. it, we know that our election infrastructure is under attack. And it, you know, it sounds like a Tom Clancy novel. And it's what I always say, but it, but it's not, um, there are unscrupulous actors outside of the country. There could be some inside the country too, for all we know, who are very smart and who are trying to tamper with, um, the, the technological election, um, infrastructure. And, you know, there, there are advantages to our decentralized system and there are disadvantages to our de- decentralized system. And one of the issues we have is that, um, uh, is that, you know, they, some of our counties are more vulnerable. And so I think that, you know, for me, there's, there's really two problems there. And, and the first one's quite obvious is that we don't want anybody to mess with the numbers. Um, we don't want anybody to be able to, um, to affect uh, vote totals or anything like that. But, but I think as fundamentally, and, and for me, I think the, the, the bigger concern here almost, or as big of a concern is that it undermines people's confidence in our elections, right? Yeah. And so if people don't have confidence in our elections, they're much less likely to show up at the polls uh, and and vote because they're not going to think that their election, um, that their vote, excuse me, counts. And right now, I think, you know, between some of the, you know, the, you know, the president, frankly, and um, uh, uh, some of the stuff that's happening, people have really, um, there's been some concern sowed into people that their vote is in fact going to count. Um, and so I think that that's why it has to be priority number one um, for us to take uh, election security seriously and to recognize that there is, you know, there's no such thing as an unhackable voting system. So we need to um, build in as many redundancies as we can and take as many steps as we can um, to, you know, make it harder to tamper with our infrastructure. Should we back everything with paper? I, I support some sort of a paper backup for everything. Absolutely. Be it, you know, the good old fashioned, you know, you just fill it out on, on paper or, you know, having a verifiable uh, paper trail um, on uh, a voter verified paper trail on uh, your election machines. I, I think that that's, that, that's the most, I think that's the most important step we can take. Um, um, the most important step. Yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. The most <laughs> important step that we can take to, uh, to not only secure our elections, but also to give people confidence in their elections so that they don't sit it out because they think their their vote not be, might not be counted. Yeah. So in 2010, the Indiana State Legislature drew new lines and gerrymandered the 
crap out of Indiana. And, but they were really crafty, much more so than, say, Pennsylvania or North Carolina, because in Indiana, they used pretty straight lines. So it doesn't look as gerrymandered as it really is. Um, it was a, a highly skilled gerrymander, shall we say. So, um, but it's just as insidious. And it has um, uh, basically devalued the votes of Democrats all over the state. So um, in 2020, we go literally back to the drawing board. And how would you recommend that we draw fair lines? How, how do states draw fair lines? Let, let me first just touch on that first, you know, part of, you know, the run-up of your question there, which is that, you know, if you look at Indiana's map, it's not as ugly as, you know, Pennsylvania or North Carolina. Um, you know, but those straight lines go straight down the middle of a lot of cities, right? And so there's right. a lot of things that they have done. And, and if you look at the numbers on it, you know, because there's all sorts of, you know, analysis that people much smarter than I am can, you know, mathematically can run on run on the districts. And, you know, Indiana still has one of the most, you know, depending on which of our maps you look at, one of the most gerrymandered um, set of maps uh, in the country, even though it's not quite as, you know, not quite as ugly. But, you know, looking forward right now, you know, that is what it is. And so what can we do going forward to make um, the situation better? I'd like to see an independent, you know, commission handle it um, to uh, uh, limit the influence that, that elected politicians can have to the extent possible. I think some of the, you know, where you've seen out of the systems in a lot of states that have independent commissions work really well, right? Like Arizona or um, Iowa. And there was a proposal in the legislature this year, the Indiana legislature this year to um, enact an independent commission, you know, not surprisingly, it, it, it wasn't approved. Um, if we don't get there, you know, I think that's the, that would be the gold standard. Um, if we don't get there, I'd like to see us enact some, some, uh, some guidelines, some, some mandatory guidelines kind of along the lines of what Florida has done uh, to, um, you know, put some constraints on, on what elected politicians can do uh, to, to gerrymander our map. So that brings us to the census. Do you have thoughts about the addition to the census of a question about citizenship? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think the census was working. Um, you know, there's always, we should always be looking for ways to improve the census. I don't think that, I don't think that's it. Um, and, and I don't <laughs> yeah. support that certainly um, at all. Uh, I think the census though, you know, was, working well, but, you know, there are, we need to do things to make the census more inclusive and not less inclusive, right? And um, to make sure more people are counted and not fewer people are counted. And, you know, I think the inclusion of that question uh, sends the absolute wrong message, right? And makes it um, much harder for us to get an accurate count um, and and for all communities across the state of Indiana and across the country um, to be accurately represented. Because there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that data that we get from the census, we use for a lot of different things, right? Uh, it's not just drawing, it's not just drawing district maps. You know, it's it's not just determining how much funds a community gets. Um, we use that data for a lot of stuff, and if we don't have an accurate count, it just it it, it makes um it makes a lot of things much harder. Exactly. So you've come out as well, a supporter. Real quick to that oh, end. sorry. Yeah. Just just real quick to that end. Is uh, the citizenship question an attempt to reduce census figures? in areas that have a lot of people of color um, and thus a lot of democratic votes, do you think? Well, I, that'll certainly be the effect, right? I mean, I, 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 I don't, I'm not going to say what I think people's, who knows what motivations are. I think that if you look, I, I think that that's 
almost certainly going to be what happens, though. And so for me, that's enough of a reason to be concerned about it. Yeah. So you have come out as a supporter of same-day registration. Um, are, do you also yep. support or have you also thought about things like automatic BMV registration, vote by mail, vote online? Have you? Do you have any thoughts about any sure. of those? I do. And, you know, honestly, my thought is if you bring me an idea – that will increase voter turnout and make it easier for people to participate in the process. Um, you know, I'm inclined to support that idea, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, obviously you need to look at the specifics of it, but vote by mail, absolutely. There was a bill in Indiana. This, in Indiana, um, you can there is absentee by mail voting, but you have to have an excuse. You have to have a reason, basically. So, you know, you're out of the county on election day or you're over 65 or, you know, you, you have some sort of infirmity or something like that. Um, but you have to have some sort of a reason. And so there was a bill this year that would have enacted in Indiana no excuse, no fault, absentee, you know, absentee by mail voting. So anybody who wanted to, you know, for the 30 days before the election or so, um, could get an absentee ballot by mail. You know, it was uncontroversial. It passed the Indiana State Senate, which is overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, and it was, it just, you know, they, it died in the House. It didn't even get, I don't, I don't even think it got a hearing. It certainly didn't get through. So, um, you know, to me, that just screamed, that's something that was nobody disagreed with, but, you know, it screams, uh, uh, you know, partisanship. Um, so, you know, I support vote by mail. I, I, I would support some sort of an automatic voter registration program. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to see us allow, if we don't do that, I'd like to see us allow 16-year-olds to pre-register to vote, you know, so that when they go get their driver's license at 16 in a month or whatever it is now, um, yeah. they can register then, right? You know, now you have to wait till you're 17. Um and, uh, you know, internet voting, I, I have, I'm not opposed to it, but I think that, you know, given the, some of the security concerns we have right now, we need to be, yeah, I would want to take that into consideration, at, right? At the high um, Russian hacking so. is probably not the time for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, you know, people overseas, and I think there are some, you know, there's some, some, sometimes it makes sense, but if you could just as easily mail somebody a ballot, you know, in a secure process, I think that that, you know, paper ballot, I think that makes uh, an awful lot of sense. So there is something kind of interesting going on in Marion County. And for those of you who aren't living in Indiana, Marion County is the county where Indianapolis is located. And um, in Marion, they are switching from election precincts to polling places. And um, the, the intention is to increase ease of access to voting to add more early voting locations, but there are concerns that the overall number of voting locations will be decreased. Do you have a position or thoughts on this, or is this something we sort of have to wait and see how it works out? I mean, we do need to see how it works out, but I think, like, if, we, if I can just take a step back on that to explain from my perspective, you know, where, the, where this, the reason this change is being made and where the issue started is with you know, the early voting situation in Marion County. Um, so, you know, Marion County is obviously, you know, it's Indianapolis, they're coterminous, it's the biggest um, uh, biggest jur- jurisdiction in the state. Um, also, you know, Indiana has early, early voting. We have a month or about a month of in-person early voting. And um, it's up to the counties. The counties only have to have one early voting site, right, at the, wherever the county clerk's offices. So in Indianapolis, that's downtown Indianapolis. Well, they if you're in Ohio County, um, and which only has a population of 5,000 people, 
one early voting location makes sense, but there are exactly as many early voting locations in Ohio County as there are in Marion County. Yeah. And so, you know, but if you go then to the, you know, to the, 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 you know, so-called Collar counties, you know, around um, Indianapolis, like Hamilton County, you know, which is just north of Indianapolis, you know, has it's a big county, but it has a smaller population. It has, you know, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it has several early voting sites, right? If you go to my county um, in Northwest Indiana, which has, I think, around 180,000 people in it, which is about, you know, 20% of the size of Indianapolis, um, it's got five or six early voting sites. Um, the issue there is that, you know, the this is what our legislature has done, have, has done. They've said that, you know, both parties have to agree to establish, you know, early voting sites beyond the one mandatory one. And in Indianapolis, the Republicans just flat out refused to to agree to it um, because, you know, because they know that it drives Democratic turnout. So, um, you know, the, they, the Democrats in um and, and the, the clerk and, and the, you know, Democrats in Marion County reached a compromise with the Republicans. So thankfully, and I, you know, I, and I, I hope that it will be implemented well, I think it will be, um, we will have expanded early voting sites in uh, Marion County. They're also going to go to vote centers. But my understanding is that it's not going to result in a decrease in the number of voting sites um, in Indianapolis. Um, and so, uh, you know, under those circumstances, I, I think it's a, you know, I, I would support that, um, especially if it comes with, you know, the establishment of a reasonable number of early voting sites around the county, which is, you know, the deal that was struck. But obviously we'll have to see how it's implemented, right? And yeah. we need to make sure that, you know, they're not, because um, uh, I do have concerns with vote centers, um, but if implemented well, uh, I think that, you know, it can, and I'm confident in you know, the, we've got a great clerk in Marion County, and um, I'm confident that they'll do that. So uh, I, I think it could be a good thing. So we're getting a my, little... T- my bigger concern oh, is is that, you know, in 2018, and this is, again, this is because the Republicans are blocking it, you know, there's still only, in 2018, only going to be one early voting site in, you know, in all of Indianapolis. And that's yeah. just, I think that's just unfair. Yeah, it's Patently unfair, actually. Uh, we're getting a little tight on time, but I did want to give you an opportunity, if you wanted to take it, to talk about uh, the fact that in Pennsylvania, the GOP is moving to impeach judges who ruled against them on gerrymandering issues. And I just, that is just chilling to me. Do you have any thoughts? Anything you'd like to say about that? Oh, I, yeah. I think chilling is chilling is an understatement. I mean, you know, as, as, a, as an attorney, I'm particularly... You know, it's it, judges are, 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 are and, um, you know, are supposed to be neutral. And when you subject them to that kind of a political pressure, it just undermines the entire idea of, of neutrality in our judiciary. I mean, I just think that's absolutely I think I think chilling chilling is the right word with several exclamation points after it. Um, you know, it's it is, though, part and parcel of kind of the, the, the playbook that you're seeing around the country. Right. Which is right. You know. If you can't win, as a, you know, I don't want us to institute reforms in Indiana that help Democrats, right? I want us to institute reforms in Indiana that help everybody vote and that make our system fair, you know? And um, if we can't win fair and square, then we shouldn't be, you know, if Democrats can't win fair and square, then we shouldn't be winning, you know? But unfortunately, um, uh, in Indiana and, and, and in states like North Carolina and Pennsylvania, you've seen it just terribly, right? The, the, the leadership in those states um, has... Uh, change the rules and set the rules just to help people in their party, just to help, you know, other Republicans. And 
that's not how democracy works. It's not how democracy is supposed to work. Um, and when we saw, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, when the court said, hey, you know, y- you guys can't skew it like this, right? You know, we need to have a, a fair playing field um, for people in the legislature to then come through. And, you know, you might say you disagree with it. You might try and pass a constitutional amendment or whatever. You know, that's, that's within your prerogative. Um, but to go start, you know, impeaching judges because uh, you don't agree with something they did, um, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I think it's very troubling. Yeah. So, uh, folks, um, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today here on Hopping Mad. Folks, there are some 20,000 of you out there, and um, I'd like to ask you to all go and uh, to jimharper4forindiana.com. The thing about Jim and about just, every... Just Harper. Just oh, Harper. Just it's Harper just Harper. I'm sorry. <laughs> Harper4indiana.com. Uh, it's, it is important, even if you live in Maine, every Secretary of State race in this nation is important to the Democratic Party. Absolutely every single one. Jim's a great candidate. He's exactly who we need to see in Indianapolis and exactly who we as a Democratic Party need to see in that position across the country. So please go to his website. If you've got $5, $10, chip in. Let's get Jim in, moved to Indianapolis. Will and I want to see... <laughs> Will and I want to send out our thanks to Netroots Radio and to our fabulous editor, Michelle LaSure, and especially to you folks for joining us today. You can find the broadcast version of Hopping Mad on Netroots Radio at 8 a.m. on Mondays. The full podcast version of our show is free and usually includes an extended interview, which we call Hop, uh, which we call Extra Mad. It doesn't today because it's the Easter holiday this weekend and there's lots for a rabbit to do. The podcast can be found on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and at most other internet podcast apps. Our website is imhoppingmad.com, and you can listen to, download, or comment on the show there. We love to receive your comments, and we make every effort to answer them as soon as our day jobs permit. You will find us on Twitter at I'm Hopping Mad. Will's on Twitter at WillMcLeod99, and I'm there, obviously, as Arnless Bunny. Hopping Mad is your place on Progressive Radio for deep dive down the rabbit hole coverage of politics, economics, and, of course, carrots. Until next week, cheers. Next up, K-Girl in the Morning, here on Netroots Radio. <laughs>